HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Pokes Spices. Discover flavorful goodness. Learn more at pokspices.org. Hello to everyone. I'm Louisa Kasdan, your host for Let's Talk About Food, a podcast devoted to first-person storytelling where food plays a pivotal, if not a starring role. Everyone has a food story. Food is at the heart of human connection, at the center of love, of ritual, of need and want, and most of all, food creates community. And community is what we crave. Today we talk with Kathleen Finley, the president of Glenwood Center for Regional Food and Farming in New York's Hudson Valley. Kat has been a leader in the regenerative agriculture movement for most of her career. She's also been instrumental in organizing women who work for environmental progress. And now, as the president of Glenwood, she's in a position to connect food and farming changemakers from all across the country and around the world. Living and loving it on a beautiful little farm in the Hudson Valley, it's fair to say that Kat has become a national figure in the world of progressive agriculture. As a personal aside, it was Kat who first got me into the world of recording people's first-person food stories. We recorded at festivals and at farms and even at the American Museum of Natural History in New York. It was a blast. And that's where I learned that truly everyone has a food story. Tell us about how you started to hone in on food. Okay. Why food for me? I think I'd go back to growing up in Sacramento, California, and I was the youngest of five. Um, My mother raised me on her own, and I was much younger than my siblings. And we spent a bunch of time in the foothills of the Sierra Nevadas. And I spent a lot of time outside exploring on my own, actually with a friend's dog named Lucky, often. I really credit that exploration as seminal in an awakening, a sense of wonder about the natural world. And it actually was in this cave, it was an old mining cave, and I shone my flashlight on the ceiling. And suddenly I started hearing and seeing the ceiling move. And it was hundreds, thousands of bats that I woke up and swooped past me. I'm like eight years old. And I wasn't freaked out. Instead, I was in awe that 
these animals live here that I just had this experience, this visceral sound feeling experience in nature. And that started me on a path of really trying to understand the natural world and then understanding the threats to the natural world. I started to understand that food is our most fundamental connection to nature and that all of us share that. It's a very democratic connection to nature. And if we want to think about how important the natural world is to our health and our well-being, food is an excellent place to start. That sort of took me on a path of centering food in my work. But really, my passion is about how can we recognize that nature is taking care of us. I studied biology in college and marine biology and also had a lot of communication and writing classes. I actually thought I was going to be a science journalist and tried my hand at that. I did a master's program at BU in science journalism. It was a great program. But when I started writing about the climate crisis in the 90s, and when editors told me I had to have, for every person that said climate change existed, there had to be a person that said climate change didn't exist, a scientist. I realized that journalism wasn't for me, that I needed to be more subjective. And I had opinions that I wanted to share. And that led me, my mother is uh, was born and raised in Bermuda. I'm Bermudian. And I moved back there after college and after grad school and ended up working at a U.S. oceanographic institution that is based there, kind of like a woods hole, if people are familiar with that. Deeply interested in how the ocean ecosystem was changing and what the threats were to that system, but started thinking about seafood a lot. And again, that connection between ourselves and this vast unknown entity that is most of our world, the ocean, finding a way into people's hearts and minds about the ocean came through seafood for me. I met a bunch of physicians that were looking at the connections between ocean and human health, the role that the ocean plays in our health and well-being at Harvard Medical School. So I started working on a whole range of issues, ocean and human health, loss of biodiversity and human health, and then really um, focused on food and agriculture and health and those connections. It was a unique position at Harvard Medical School because there's teaching hospitals that the school was affiliated with and started talking to them about how they procure the food that they're serving in their hospitals and institutions, and also what they're telling patients about food and health. There was one memorable moment when I walked into the cafeteria of Children's Hospital, arguably one of the best pediatric hospitals in our country. Incredible, incredible work happens there. I walked into the cafeteria and the offerings were mostly chicken nuggets, hamburgers, french fries, soda, and I just was stunned. It felt to me like you were hawking cigarettes in a cancer ward, that we have an obesity problem with our children, pediatric especially, that, that the disconnect is so huge that even an institution dedicated to advancing the health of children didn't understand that basic nutrition of what we're offering to put in children's bodies. So we made some good progress with hospitals, I feel like, in that work there and with the university in general. And I think it's progressed slowly, but it's progressed.
Can you just reference for me some of the things that came out of that initiative or that awareness? We worked with the culinary departments and a handful of hospitals. What we realized is there's tons of internal expertise on what healthy food is. But really what we did was work with the directors of the culinary department. So the chefs or the sous chefs or the folks that work in the kitchen or who order the food from Aramark or Restaurant Associates or wherever they're ordering from. We enlisted the help of a well-known cook slash chef. His name is Barton Seaver. He was able to kind of talk peer-to-peer with the culinary folks in a way I couldn't or any of my Harvard colleagues couldn't. He was able to say, why don't we rethink putting chicken nuggets at the center of the plate and just using chicken stock instead and making a soup or a stock-based meal that has far less need to procure chickens locally, right? So just tiny tweaks at the very beginning of recipe development were, I think, important for both the university and for the hospitals. How can we do more? You know, the budgets are tiny. So how can we get all of the protein we want in there? But how can we do it in a way that's economical and that's healthy? So I found that really worked, the peer-to-peer communication and creating that let's figure this out together kind of mentality in those institutions. And you sort of started a wave that's happening all over the country after that. Talk about that, how that one little awareness essentially launched a whole tsunami at hospitals everywhere. Healthcare Without Harm was instrumental in those early days and continues to work with hospitals and healthcare centers around the country. They have a pledge that an institution can take where they set goals for themselves in terms of procurement, procuring regional food and supporting local farms, but also in terms of the health aspects of the meals that they're serving. There's been a fabulous growth of teaching kitchens at hospitals. So you might be seeing your doctor for a cardiac-related issue. You're at risk for heart disease. And part of your plan will be you got to take courses for heart-friendly cooking at our fabulous kitchen. And you go, and it's fun, and there are people cooking and eating, and you learn a couple of tricks that you can take home. That movement has, has really grown. There's a growing awareness across the board with this basic idea about how food is fundamental to our health. One of the things that we did at Harvard is we started an edible garden right on Mount Auburn Street near the college. One question I got early on was from one of the deans, pretty leadership person at the university level. And she said, I don't understand why the medical school is starting the garden. And I thought, right, right. Because that disconnect of food is health. Food is your probably what you have control over the most in terms of your of your health and well-being, yet people think of it like a garden is something in the horticultural realm, not something in the health realm. At one point, you went off on one of the salmon boats in Alaska with a whole bunch of people. What was that like? I mean, it was really fun. That was a great group of folks. Yeah. I mean, that was incredible to, there were some nutritionists, there were some chefs, and we looked at 
how there's fabulous regulation on that fisheries. It works. And to see how the system performs, we were also there to look at a threat. There was a copper mine that was being proposed in the Bristol Bay area that was going to affect the waterways of this really important fisheries. The reason for that trip was to talk to people about how that would be detrimental to our health and our well-being, even if you don't live anywhere near it. And But just to see that wild place that is still relatively untouched. I mean, there's no place on this planet that is untouched by human fingerprints, but it's pretty close to pristine to experience. And still to this day, wild salmon is one of my most important food sources, loaded with omega-3s. So good. Can feel good about eating it. It's awesome. And you doubled down after you left Harvard on the food topic. Talk about that. I run this nonprofit. We're based in the Hudson Valley. It's called the Glenwood Center for Regional Food and Farming. And the attraction to come here was to go from an academic institution. I mean, we did some stuff. We did the garden. We did some real stuff with hospitals. We did some stuff with chefs. And I think we made tangible change. But the opportunity here at Glenwood, for me personally, was to become more of a practitioner. Like, how do you actually build a regional food system? What works? What doesn't work? Where are the opportunities? What are the levers? What are the incentives? Where are the problems actually existing? So that's what I wake up and do every day. How can we do this? And that feels really good. As I said, food is such a tangible way to get to so many things. You can get to the climate crisis. You can get to loss of biodiversity. You can get to exposure to pesticides. You can get to a fundamental philosophical understanding of working in harmony with nature. I care about food. I care about agriculture. But for me, it's bigger than that. But food and agriculture are a wonderful, tangible way to get to those issues. We'll be back with Kathleen Finley in just a minute, and she'll share a little more of what it's like living the good life on the farm. This episode was brought to you by Poke Spices. The company's founder, Abna Foley, was born in Ghana, West Africa, to a farmer father who taught her how to blend the West African holy trinity of hot peppers, ginger, and onion. She developed poke spices to help American consumers discover the flavorful goodness of West Africa through the poke spices' spicy seasonings. Developed without any MSG, sugar, and preservatives, the award-winning poke spices seasonings can be sprinkled here and there to give your meals that extra kick. Learn more at pokspices.org. And we are back with Kat Finley. You're living on a farm. You're living on a working farm. You moved from sort of a double-decker in Cambridge, Massachusetts, to a farm in upstate New York. What is that like every day? I'm a nature girl at heart, so I love being in a rural place. Our center operates a training farm, so we train new entry farmers, and we have a vegetable production and pasture-based livestock operation. And we're surrounded by tens of thousands of acres of protected state land. Today, I woke up, I actually drove a little bit 
because I was seeking flat ground. I ran five miles in a beautiful, beautiful place. And then I came back. I just had a slice of bread that my partner made this morning with some awesome butter from a local dairy. And that's a nice lifestyle. And then the rest of my day is about talking to my staff who train our new entry farmers, thinking about a new program that we launched that pays exclusively BIPOC women or LGBTQ-owned farms that are producing food for their local hunger relief organizations. So that's been an initiative that seeks to get more local, fresh, healthy food into the hunger relief system. That need became more apparent in the pandemic when those food pantries and places where people go have been inundated with folks in need and the farmers that we work with really want to help them. So we figured out a way to pay them to do that. I'll work on that later, you know. So that's a little bit what my day looks like. You are the textbook definition of a connector, not only in the food community, but particularly in the community. How'd you become that person? Such a good question. I don't know that I've thought about the how or why. I started valuing relationships pretty early in life. And maybe that's because my home life was rough. And so I found acknowledgement and belonging outside of home at school and in other, some sports and other places where I really valued relationships that might not be my primary relationship, but a couple little bright spots that were guides and influencers. And I recognize that, I think, at an early age about how valuable that is. I love gifting that to other people. I love gifting a connection to someone else that then can go on maybe to do nothing, maybe to fizzle out, maybe they're allergic to each other. But Sometimes it creates magic that you couldn't possibly imagine. That's just so gratifying that just that little tiny, like, let me put you two together and see what happens can turn into such wonderful, wonderful work. And my networks are all, I really admire folks like yourself, Louisa, who do good work, who are interested and invested in the collective gain, not the individual gain, who want to make the collective experience better. You should give yourself a lot of credit for it, because I have watched you draw all sorts of people together and have watched them set up some collaborations and go on and on. It's really, it's an incredible gift, Kathleen. The way you are around food is there is a kind of joyfulness. We listen to just what you said about food. It sounds really very serious and purposeful, and that's great. And I think that's wonderful. And there are a lot of people who do really serious and good work, but you love it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's right. And that's one of the things, and a really important thing, why food is such a great thing to center on. I spent that first part of my young career trying to convince people that the ocean matters to them. And the ocean is majestic. It's beautiful. There's cool things in it, but it doesn't necessarily, I mean, it can bring you joy, but it doesn't bring you the kind of joy you get when you bite into that sun-ripened tomato or And the cultural aspect of being able to 
share your story, your cuisine, your heritage with others and to come together in celebration and community and always that is food is around. So it is um, inherently joyful. Yeah, for sure. We began together collecting people's food stories. Share with me one of yours. (laughs) Pick one. Give me one. Yeah, that's good. There's many to choose from. I think I have to do two. I think I have to do two. Worst and maybe not best, but recent and memorable. And it's funny because you asked me to prop my microphone up and I happened to use Nigella's recent cookbook. And this is a Nigella story. I just discovered her cookbooks. She had a recipe. I don't even remember what cookbook it is, but it, it involves beets. It's like a beet, cold beet soup. It's pink. And I thought it just looked so cool. And I was visiting my family, my siblings in California. Recall that I'm the youngest of five. Um, So that just translates into I get teased a lot. And my brothers, two of my brothers in the military, you know, um, they're kind of rough guys. They're all huge and, you know, drink a lot of milk from the carton kind of guys. And I make this... um, I make this pink soup, this cold pink soup in the blender, and I pour it out for my brothers in particular. And the the look on their face is just like, you've got to be kidding me. There's no way I'm going to eat pink soup. I mean, this is just like crazy. What is this? What's a beet? I mean, like, what is this? And my poor sister's kitchen was covered because the blender ended up breaking and the top came off. So there was pink beet soup everywhere. Anyway, end of this story, my brothers, of course, loved it because it was delicious. It just was different. So that's that's a treasured one. And then the other one is recent. I was in Bermuda in the kitchen where my mother was born and raised in the house my brother was born and raised. When I'm in that kitchen... She's there. Her spirit is there with me. And uh, loquats are a little kind of apricot-like fruit that are have a short season. And we were there for loquat season. And we had picked some on the railway trail. And this guy had stopped and said, oh, I've got the best tree, the best loquat tree that has the best loquats on it. I'm not going to tell you where it is. I can't tell you where it is. And five minutes later, he tells us exactly where it is. And we go and we pick all these loquats. Um, and I made a loquat upside down cake, which I remember my mother doing. I remember my grandmother doing in that kitchen with them, with my mother and my grandmother spiritually, um, having had this wonderful neighborly experience of finding this. And it was an awesome loquat tree. It is like the best loquat tree in Bermuda. Totally hidden. I'm not going to tell you where it is. And... Um, you know, that that's really special to me to have that kind of memory and lineage of through food that still connects me to folks that haven't been physically with me for a while. I've never, ever had a loquat. I did not know that they came from Bermuda. We are at the outer edge of my citrus knowledge now, of my fruit knowledge. Um, <laughs> Glenwood's mission is regenerative farming. Like, What's the goal for the next five years? Where will we be? We need to train a new generation of farmers who are skilled at regenerative agriculture and understand how to run farm businesses 
that are viable. We need that in the Hudson Valley. We need that in the food regions of this country. We want to train 100 farmers in the next five years that could start their own businesses and be supported and and make those businesses work and getting them access to land and having them be able to grow real food. That's a lot of what we do. The other thing that we work hard on is how to make that food accessible to folks, regardless of their income. Part of that is the work that I mentioned about paying farmers to distribute food to their hunger relief organizations. What we're working on now a lot is CSA as a really scalable model of um, healthy eating and uh, that encourages wonderful farming. We are piloting work that allows folks with SNAP dollars to subscribe to a CSA. That's been challenging because you typically pay up front for CSAs, but we've figured out how to do that. Really thinking about food sovereignty. What I mean when I say that is how can we collectively create channels where folks have sovereignty over the food that they're eating? A typical shopper now who goes to a grocery store, the food that's available to them and accessible to them is curated by a handful of people who sit on boards of large mega corporations that create supermarkets. So what does it look like when people are really invested and have a voice in the kind of foodscape that they want to create and manifest in a region? And so Glenwood as an organization is really ultimately trying to foster a kind of regional food sovereignty that is inclusive, that's equitable, that's accessible, that's healthy, and that stewards the environment in a way that is much less extractive than a national conventional system. Kat, thank you. I consider you one of the uh, visionary leaders of the, the food movement. The food movement, I know it comes from a place of passion and belief. and I'm always interested in what you have to say. That's mm, fun. This has been so fun. We should do it more often. Thank you so much, Kat, for this wonderful conversation. Listeners, if you want to get involved with Glenwood or learn more about regenerative farming, just visit glenwood.org. Thank you. Thanks for listening. And thank you to our team, producer Rachel Gottbaum and sound engineer and composer Michael Moss of Soundscape Boston. You can find more of our stories at heritageradionetwork.org or by visiting our website, letstalkaboutfood.com or find them on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's Talk About Food is powered by Simplecast. This podcast is supported by the Hunger to Health Collaboratory a cross-sector leadership initiative dedicated to reducing the health consequences of hunger. With generous support from Stop and Shop, Hunger to Health Collaboratory convenes partners across sectors to advocate for health equity and food security. For more information, visit hungertohealthcollaboratory.org. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter, Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradio.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork.
Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. 